Good morning, church family. Good to see you all out today on this soggy, miserable day. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 24, and as you turn there, let's bow our hearts in prayer. Father, we do thank you for gathering us together, for the joy of fellowship, for the joy of fellowship not only with one another, but fellowship with you in your word and around your table. Lord, we thank you for your promise that when your word is given a place of promise, prominence, your Holy Spirit glorifies the Son, the Son glorifies the Father. You cause us to see ourselves as we truly are, to come to love and trust Jesus. So would you work that miracle this morning as we turn our hearts to your word? Would you grant us eyes and hearts to see the risen Christ? and to be transformed in his presence. We commit this time to you now in his name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, we are over these weeks moving through a series where we're looking at all of the resurrection appearances of Jesus captured in the Gospels and in Acts. And for those of you that sort of don't know your way around the timeline, what we've been looking at over these couple of weeks is the moments where the resurrected, risen Jesus Christ appeared to his disciples and walked with them and talked with them and did Bible studies with them and ate with them in the 50 days beginning on Easter Sunday and going all the way through to his ascension where he was caught up into heaven. We're going to get to that in about a week's time. A couple of things that we want to just anchor before we continue to look at these appearances, um, sometimes we as Christians slide into what's called Gnosticism, right? We, uh, we, we believe that there's this unbiblical division or separation between body and spirit. And so when we come to the resurrection appearances, we're tempted to think that the resurrected Jesus who appears to his disciples is something of a spirit or a phantasm or a ghost, Well, Luke goes to great pains in our passage today to counter that sort of wrong thinking. Luke wants you to be certain that the resurrected Jesus who is appearing to his disciples during these 50 days is none other than the same Jesus of Nazareth who walked with them and hung out with them for years. The same one, and in a body. It's a remarkable thing to consider that these 11 men who had spent so much time with him, they on Friday saw him die on a cross. There was no uncertainty in their mind. Their good friend had been killed on an instrument of capital punishment by the Romans. They saw that on Friday. And then on Sunday, they saw him alive just a few days later. Can you imagine what that would be like? Well, for those disciples, it caused them to conclude a couple of things. They said, he is not dead. He's risen. What a remarkable thing that would be, wouldn't it? I mean, put yourself in their shoes. So radical was this truth to them, and so certain were they, that each and every one of them to a man gave every moment of their life for the remainder of their life, and all but one gave themselves in death 
for the spreading of this good news. They, they gave themselves completely to proclaim that Jesus is alive. He's not dead. That there is forgiveness of sin in his name for all who believe. And that if you believe in him, you will be saved. All of this transpired during these resurrection appearances when these 11 guys who were pretty average guys experienced something that was anything but natural, but was completely supernatural. Jesus Christ was dead, and now he is alive. So we're going to turn to God's word this morning and track along with these disciples on this next segment of these 50 days, Luke chapter 24, verses 36 to 49. And we're going to pull out three things. So if you're taking notes, three, three points. The first one is that the resurrected Jesus comes to his disciples in peace. The second is that he comes to them for real. The third point is that he comes to them as the fulfillment of Scripture. And then we'll conclude with a fourth point. That he comes to them on his way to others. I, I know in particular there are a couple of children who are staying in today that are taking notes at their parents' request. So kids, did you get those points down? All right, now let's move through those. The first one, look at verses 36 to 37. Luke says, as they, the disciples, the eleven, were talking about these things, these things that had occurred between Friday and Sunday, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, what did he say? Peace to you. Verse 37. But they were startled and frightened, and rightly so. They thought that they had seen a spirit. We can't move too quickly off this simple thing. It's so clear in the text, but so profound when we apply it to them and to us. Jesus' first words to the disciples were, Peace be with you. And in this simple moment, we note the gracious way that the risen Jesus comes to the eleven. Now, if you put yourself in their shoes, okay, if you imagine that you were a disciple and you all of a sudden saw the resurrected Jesus, can you imagine that maybe you would have some conflicted feelings? You'd have joy on the one hand, and we're going to talk about that in a moment. But perhaps if you were one of those 11 guys and you saw your best friend back to life, you might also have a good portion of dread. And not merely fear because people who are dead generally stay dead, right? So it's kind of odd. You're like, wow, what's going on? But your dread and your fear, I think, would go even deeper than that. Because you'd be standing there looking at your friend and you'd remember that it was only three days ago that each and every one of you to a man abandoned him in his hour of greatest need. You'd be confronted with the very one, the very closest friend, who in his darkest hour, you broke all of your promises to him. By some of you, 
leading up to that, had even promised that you would die before you would ever betray him. And yet, in his hour of need, in your hour of trial, you failed. Well, friends, here we see the gospel. Here we behold the good news of God's love for us in Jesus. Here we see that the eleven are an example of all sinners, sinners who are reconciled to God, not because of their faithfulness, not because of their virtue. These disciples did nothing but abandon Jesus, deny him, and chart a course of cowardly faithlessness. And yet the risen Christ comes to them in this moment and his first words to them cut the awkward tension. He says, peace to you. He tells them, I'm not coming to you to bring retribution for your faithlessness. I haven't come to you to ring out a a pound of flesh. We both know you failed. We both know you came short. We both know you denied me. But I've come to you in peace. And I've come to bring you peace. It was in reading this passage this week that I, um, I was really deeply moved because I put myself in these disciples' sandals. <laughs> and I thought, man, if Christ's message to them was peace to you, there is hope even for someone like me. And maybe you would feel similarly this morning. You know, the, the fact of the matter is, as we read through Scripture, um, there is no such thing as a worthy disciple. We're all like the 11. And perhaps this morning as you're thinking about the risen Jesus, just the very thought of him coming to you fills you with dread and terror. Perhaps that dread and terror has kept you away from him in shame. Many of us are all too aware of our own failures and shortcomings. We could easily recite all the times that we've functionally denied him. And yet, here we see this picture. The risen Christ comes to us in peace. And to bring us peace. So here is the good news that we see in the 50 days of Easter. That the disciples' peace with God is not something that they achieved. It's not because they were stand-up guys. In fact, they deserve the opposite of peace. Could you imagine, could you imagine, if you treated a friend the way that the disciples had treated Jesus, what would you deserve? What would be just and right? If you had a friend who in their hour of darkest need. Let's say that there was someone who for the last three years, you'd spent all of your time with them, you'd professed your love for them, you were said, you are my very best friend, and then in the moment that they were diagnosed with terminal cancer, you dipped. 
What would you deserve? Well, you would deserve all of their hatred and all of their acrimony. That's what you would deserve. What about these disciples? What did they deserve? Well, they deserve the same from Jesus. Yet he comes to them in peace. Look, friends, this morning, you are reminded in this passage that your friendship with Jesus has nothing to do with your side of the equation. You and I are miserable friends all the time. The strength of our friendship with him is because he comes to us in love and in peace, even and especially when we have failed him. That's the gospel. He appears to you. He declares peace. And he brings you peace. Costly peace. That's been purchased by your friend and your brother. Let's think for a moment about that peace. What is it? I have the joy of talking regularly to people who are newly saved, newly born again, newly born of the Spirit. And one of the things that is a common theme that sort of runs through all of my conversations with them is that they tell me about a peace that they've experienced that they'd theretofore never known. In fact, I was talking to one young fellow and he got saved in the parking lot of a fast food restaurant a while ago. And he, uh, he said to me that for his whole life, he'd been plagued by anxiety and depression. He just had anything in his life but peace. He said it was such a dominant message in his mind, this constant you know, um, tape recorder. It was just playing and replaying anxiety and doubt and fear and, and depression. Then he got saved. And he said that for the first two weeks after he got saved, he thought he had gone crazy. Because it was the first time in his life that he actually experienced true peace. All of those anxieties and all of those fears and all of those condemnations from Satan had been silenced for the first time ever in his life. And he just wasn't used to it. It was so foreign to him that he thought he'd lost his mind. It was God's peace. He loved it. He thought, man, if this is crazy, give me more. It's not surprising that when the resurrected Christ comes to you with the good news of his unmerited love for you, it brings you peace. Because it closes the deepest chasm in your life. Okay? Every single one of us has this clear idea of who we would want to be. More specifically, we have a clear idea of who God would want us to be. And yet we know that we fall short of that all the time. We sin. We're like the disciples who are cowardly and faithless and deny Jesus. And what this creates within each and every one of our psyches is this dissonance. Do you know what I mean by dissonance? It creates this lack of integrity in our personhood. 
this gap between who we know God wants us to be and how we know we actually fall short. It's a gap and a chasm that none of us could ever close on our own. I think that that is what's truly at the root of most of our anxieties. I'm sure there are other clinical reasons for it too, but that's at least some of them. I know in my life, the things that cause me the deepest anxieties are not workload or pressure or volume of work. It's any time that I have deep dissonance. When there's a disconnect between what I truly think and what I'm saying. When there's a disconnect between who I truly am and the way that I'm acting. Those are the things that create anxiety and rob me of peace. How much more so when it comes to something like who I know God wants me to be and how I fall short creates anxiety. It robs me of my peace. Well, if you can relate to that in any way this morning, then the risen Christ comes to you too. Not with judgment. But he speaks peace to you. Peace. Now, I mean, we could do a whole sermon series just on the word peace, but we're not going to. I want to move quickly to my second point. Just before I do, peace is a dominant theme throughout Scripture, right? From cover to cover, it's the story of God creating a peaceful cosmos that's then interrupted by sin and faces the cascading consequences of the robbing of that peace and then God restoring peace through Jesus Christ, ultimately saving a people for himself and establishing a new heaven and a new earth that is perfectly peaceful. The lion with the lamb, the children playing over the adder's nest. Peace is at the center of the story. And that's exactly what Jesus speaks to them. So Jesus isn't just some hippie dude who's like showing up with long hair and, you know, flowing bandana or whatever. And he's like, yo, peace, guys. He's telling them something that is deeply theological and profound. He's saying to them, shalom. Shalom is the Hebrew word for peace. And it doesn't just mean peace like the absence of warfare. That's not what it means. The kind of peace that the risen Christ speaks to these guys who are torn apart and dissonant under the weight of their own sin and faithlessness is shalom peace. Everything that is broken set aright. Everything that is torn apart, everything that is suffered because of a lack of integrity set right by God. That's what the risen Christ says to those disciples on that day. And that's what the risen Christ says to you. No matter how broken our lives are, no matter how far short we fall of God's best, like the disciples denying Jesus, the risen Christ comes to you in peace and to bring you peace that closes that gap of that dissonance in your life, washes away the anxiety, and brings you peace. Look at verses 38 to 43. He comes in peace, and he comes for real. Look, Jesus is alive. 
Okay, that's, that's the message of the Gospels. Like really alive. Not like pretend alive, not like alive in some uh, just metaphorical, allegorical, archetypal sense. Like, oh, you should live as though he's alive and you can reap the benefits even if it's not actually true. No, that's baloney. He's alive. That's what Luke is saying. Verse 38. And he, Jesus, says to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? He says, look at my hands, look at my feet. It is I myself, touch me and see. And then he says to the guys, for a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones. Like, look, see what I have? And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. All right, in these verses... Luke is proving the point that Jesus is truly, actually, bodily alive. That's his big point. And he does two things primarily to show this. He presents the disciples with his body, pierced, in the expected places. He's like, look, it's me. And then he has some broiled fish. Now, broiled fish sounds pretty disgusting to me, but he liked it. And the point was, he's like, I'm not a figment of your imagination. So let's look first at his first evidence that he's truly alive, his body. Okay, that's what we see in these verses. In showing them his body, he is not only proving that he is bodily, truly resurrected, but he's also pushing that peace point a little further. He does so with a question in verse 38. Do you see it there? He says, why are you so troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? And he points to his body. He addresses their questions and their doubts. He addresses their lack of peace. And he says, no, no, guys, this is not pie-in-the-sky, hopeful, fanciful optimism. This is real. I'm really alive, and it's really me. He says, everything that's bringing you anxiety can be washed away if you will merely look at my hands and at my feet and see that your peace is written in my hands and feet. Your salvation is written in my wounds. This is real. And that's hope for them and hope for us that goes so far beyond our own just internal feelings of anxiety. That's what we talked about already when it comes to peace, right? Our own subjective feelings of dissonance and the anxiety that that causes. But you know there's a deeper cause for all of us for our anxiety, an existential one. And that is that our sin not only causes internal feelings of anxiety and dissonance, but our sin causes an objective fact of the wrath of God. And it's to that point 
that Jesus points to his body. Because he's saying to the disciples, I come to you in peace. You are well aware of all of your own anxieties and worries and doubts. He's saying, but I'm truly here. It's truly me. And with these scars that you see, right? He's like, he's like Simon, Peter, Andrew, John, Philip, Thomas, Matthew, all you guys. He's like, look, right here. Those are the answers to your deepest worries and fears. The, the biggest thing that's causing you anxiety right now is not even just your feelings of dissonance, your feelings of falling short. It's the fact of your guilt before God. And I'm here and I've paid the price for you. Look how real it is. Touch it. Feel it. That's what he says in verse 39. Look, we all know that we have sinned and accrued the wrath of God. Through our faithlessness to God and to Jesus. If we're honest, there are many ways, large and small, that we deny Jesus, just like the disciples in sin. Sometimes it's for expediency. You will deny that you know Jesus. You'll deny his lordship and the consequences of that because it gets you ahead a little at work. Or it avoids an awkward conversation with your neighbor. And so you deny him just a little. You know that's sin. Or in other cases, maybe you deny him for pride. You functionally act as though you can save yourself by your own good works or by your moral currency or by being better than average. But then, in a moment like this, all of your delusions are stripped away when the risen Christ appears to you. This same risen Jesus, who will judge you on the last day? He's going to be the judge. He's now standing before you, and he sees everything that you've done, everything that you haven't done, even the thoughts and the imaginations of your heart. And you begin to get a sense of the weight of your sin. Not just in terms of subjective feelings that we talked about, but further, the objective reality that your sin is an open rebellion against your good God. And through it, you have accrued his wrath. You deserve hell and death for all of eternity. And that could still never pay the price in full. Your determined lack of faith has merited nothing less than the wrath of God. And yet Jesus comes to you and he says, I'm really risen. Really look at my hands. Really look at my feet. Because I come to you in peace. I have paid the price that your sin demands. That's what he's saying to the disciples here when they're gathered. He says, peace to you. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. These wounds that should have been yours, I have taken them 
I have subsumed the wrath of God that's yours into my body for you and on your behalf, and I have conquered death. So God has shown that my sacrifice has been accepted and vindicated me. You have nothing but peace. You don't deserve it, but I'm bringing it to you. Their response to this bodily proof in verses 40 and 41. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and feet, verse 41. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, do you have anything to eat? Um, Did you guys watch the Leafs game last night? You didn't think I was going to get through the whole sermon without mentioning it, did you? I'm a lifelong Leafs fan, which means I've absorbed 47, almost 48 years of abuse, right? In 2013, when the Maple Leafs were up three games to one in the series of the first round against the Boston Bruins, you guys remember this series, 2013? Then they, the Bruins battled back in the series, forced a game seven. With something like five minutes left in game seven, the Leafs were up four to one, I think, and they ended up losing the game in overtime. Do you remember that? Oh, man. And actually, something in me broke. I was like, I'm done. I'm not watching the Leafs anymore. And now I only watch them when they get to the playoffs. So it's been 19 years since then of heartbreak. Heartbreak. 19 years since the last time they went to the second round. It's only 10 years since that Boston Bruins incident. And then last night I was watching the Leafs game and, man, they, Tampa Bay, they came back and they tied it up. And then when it went into overtime, I looked over to Matthew and I said, if this, game goes, if this series goes to a game seven, I'm not watching it. I mean, this is how despondent I'm getting, right? Like, I've been down this road before. And then in the overtime, the puck goes in on this garbage goal, and I sat there in my chair and watched as it went over the line into the net, and in that moment, I disbelieved for joy and marveling. I did. I couldn't believe what I was watching. I'm like, has this actually happened? And then I started jumping up and down and screaming and making a lot of noise and whatnot, but I still kind of didn't believe in my heart that it was actually happening. You know that feeling. When something is too good to be true, it takes you a while to soak it in and to actually believe it. This often happens to Christians when they truly encounter the gospel, when they start to grow in the gospel. I talk to people who are pointing their life towards the good and trying to seek holiness in their life. And they'll often discover that their growth in Christ and their growth in holiness means that they become progressively more and more like Jesus and less and less like the world around them, and that's a good thing. But that the journey is never linear, that, you know, you progress a little bit in your war against sin and through discipline and the Spirit stomping out sin in your life, putting it to death, and then all of a sudden you'll whoop, trip up, right? And then you pick up and you keep going and you keep going. Um, And often in those conversations that I have with people, they express this desire They say something like, in every other area of my life, I'm able to completely 100% change things just through discipline. And they're discouraged by the fact that they still slip into sin. 
what I often find myself saying, but, you know, if you were able to 100% stomp out the sin in your life on your own, you wouldn't need a Savior. And so maybe the fact that your growth in Christ is not exactly linear, right? It has moments where you mess up. Maybe that serves a purpose in God's providence. Because it's in moments like that that you need to remind yourself that you don't save yourself, that God saves you in Jesus. It's in those moments that you don't waste them when you've sinned and screwed up and you feel bad and, and your heart is broken, that you return to the Lord and you bask in the glory of his saving grace. And then that moment is redeemed and not lost. But that's then when the next question usually comes. And people will say to me, it's just really hard to accept that someone else would pay the price for my sin for me. How can that be? You see, there are some things like the gospel that are so wonderful. There are some things like the resurrected Jesus that are so glorious that they're hard to accept. Well, that's the whole point. Christians spend their entire lives with hearts filled with gratitude, and we spend all of eternity glorying in unmerited grace from God to us in Jesus. It seems too good to be true, but it's true. And so we praise and worship Him for it. Well, if it's true, then how can you be sure? This leads us to the second proof that Jesus offered them that he was actually truly alive. First he offered his body, and in it he showed them the gospel. They have peace with God. Their sins have been forgiven. The second thing that he does is he eats with them. And in this meal, in this fellowship together, they are reminded that Jesus is alive and not just a figment of their imagination. That's why Jesus does it. He says, like, you guys are worried that I'm a spirit, that I'm a ghost. Go broil up some fish and bring it to me. I'll eat it. And they're like, wow, this is actually real. He's really alive. Listen, if you're here today and you're saying, I'm really struggling to accept the gospel, that Jesus Christ is alive, that by his wounds he's paid for my sin, you can be encouraged in the same way. Fellowship over a meal with other Christians is fellowship over a meal with the risen Christ. Just yesterday, we enjoyed a wonderful lunch with some Christian brothers and sisters. And I got to tell you, in that moment, I was looking around the table. People were sharing what the Lord is doing in their life, what God has done in their life over the last decades. And my heart was so encouraged and reminded that this unthinkably wonderful truth is actually, in fact, true. Jesus is alive. The evidence was over that meal that I shared with those other Christians as I looked around the table and, and she was telling the stories of how when she was growing up, 
The Lord Jesus Christ was directing and orchestrating things to bring her to a place of salvation. Jesus is alive. As we then went around the table and I heard him say how God was directing his family and growing them in godliness and how they were trusting in Jesus. And I thought, man, look, Jesus is alive and he's with us. See, that's how it works. Jesus provides the disciples with these two proofs. He says, I am alive. Look at my body. I paid the price for your sins. He says, I'm truly alive. You can have fellowship with me as you have fellowship with one another. Third and final point, verses 44 to 47. Jesus comes to them in peace. Jesus is really, truly alive. And the third point is, Jesus comes as the fulfillment of Scripture. Verse 44, then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Verse 46, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Look, very simply, Jesus is telling us how to read our Bibles. He's saying that he, as risen Lord and Savior, is the interpretive key to the entire Bible. He equates his own words with the words of the Old Testament. What it means is that when we open up our Bibles, um, the Old Testament is all about Jesus. We read it looking for precursors that point ahead to the fulfillment of Jesus Christ. That's how we read the Old Testament. It prefigures him. It means that when we read the New Testament, the New Testament then, which is the apostolic witness to the risen Christ, it's telling us all about what the resurrected Jesus said and did, and it tells us how he fulfills the Old Testament scriptures. And so the New Testament then becomes the framework for how we interpret the Old Testament in light of the risen Jesus. It's our lens. And this is the simple message of all of Scripture. You have peace with God because Jesus is alive. He's alive with nail scars on his hand and his feet for you and in your place. Nail scars that should be yours, that you earned, that you merited. He carries them. And all of this is in the scriptures. Just a side note, I know we live in a day where Christian media is ubiquitous. Okay? You can go home and you could spend countless hours watching Christian content online. How do you know when it's good and how do you know when it's bad? Let me give you this one piece from this passage. Christian content is good if and when it tells you that the hero of the story of the Bible is Jesus. Christian content is bad anytime it tells you that the hero of the story of Scripture is you. It's all about Jesus. It's all about him 
rising from death, paying the price for your sins so that you can be reconciled to God and live at peace. That's the story. It's not so that you can become a better you. That just makes you a better sinner on a faster road to hell. He's the hero of the story, not you. So Jesus comes to them. And in conclusion, he comes to them on his way to others. Verse 47 forward, he says, Repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be what? Proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Verse 48. Don't worry about the spreading of the gospel. God will find someone to do it. Is that what he's saying? Verse 48. He's saying you. You are witnesses of these things. You are the ones that are going to go and tell people about God's love for sinners in Jesus. You're the ones that are going to go and tell your friends and neighbors that they right now are living as objects of wrath from God. They're sinners in need of a Savior. You're going to plead with them to repent because repentance and the forgiveness of sins is now possible to them in Jesus. You are going to do that. Jesus says, you are my witnesses. Go to all nations, starting in Jerusalem. What does that mean for you? It means that you and I start in our own homes. And we go out in concentric circles. Don't tell me that you're taking the gospel to, you know, some remote island on the far side of the earth if you've never told your family about Jesus. Start there. Do it today. And in verse 49, he says, you don't even have to do it on your own power. He told the disciples, hang on for a little bit, boys. Because in not too long, you are going to be clothed with power to be my witnesses. I'll send my spirit. And if Jesus was God with them, then the Holy Spirit is God in them. And in you too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. For in it we see the resurrected Jesus, who is our peace. Who comes to us in peace and brings us peace. Because he reconciles our internal anxieties, but more importantly, because he brings us to peace with a holy God. Would you, even this morning, convince our hearts that he truly is alive indeed? Would you grant us an opportunity, even today, to be witnesses to that, to someone, to tell one person about Jesus? Lord, would you grant us that opportunity today and give us a spirit of courage to seize that moment and point them to forgiveness of sins and repentance in Christ. We pray all of this to the glory of your name. Amen.